Let's open our Bibles. We continue our instruction in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And the one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house is filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten, as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Now, especially verses 8 and 9. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, 
and whom will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this evening. We have before us, beloved, the calling of Isaiah. He is commissioned to preach. And a prophet always has to be called. Just as also all believers, as they occupy the office of prophet, priest, and king, they are also called to testify. A minister has to be called by God and by his church. Isaiah's calling is necessary for himself. He needs to know that it is the Lord who has called them to this because this task is not going to be a pleasant one. He is to proclaim great and terrible things against Judah and Jerusalem. And so Isaiah is, as it were, drawn up to heaven face to face with God's holiness. With the theme, Isaiah commissioned to preach. Notice with me the calling of Isaiah, the content of his calling, and then thirdly, the purpose of his calling. How is Isaiah called? And he says, I saw, verse 1. Not a dream where one is sleeping, but a vision where one is awake and is taken up to the very throne of God, caused to see with a spiritual eye. And what a vision he saw. He sees the heavenly temple. And it's important that it is a heavenly temple. The very thought of the temple is God there in the midst of his people. God having friendship and conversation with his people. Fellowship. He sees the Lord, second of all, on an exalted throne. And boys and girls, the garments. Beautiful, dazzling garment that fills the whole temple so that there's no other room to stand there. In other words, there's no one else there on the throne except for our God alone. He stands there sovereign. He stands there on the throne as an absolute king. The one who rules over all things in history in this world, but also the one who stands there ruling over his beloved church, his bride. On the throne. And he sees then seraphim. Those are a special kind of angels. They surround the throne with six pairs of wings. 
They know their smallness compared to the great Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And so they cover their face. They cover their feet. And with the other, they fly around. Calling to each other. Perhaps two different rows calling to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yes, he's on a throne. He has the right to rule because he is the creator of all things. He has the right to rule because the church, because he has recreated her, given her new life, which is a work which far surpasses the first work of the creation of this world because in recreation he takes that which was dead and makes it alive. He takes that which was vile and makes it glorious and holy. He has the right to rule. He has the power to rule. Yes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is given to see the royal majesty and glory of God. And he needs to see that glory. He needs to see the one who has all that glory, the one who is commissioning him. Because it makes all the difference how he's going to carry out his task, isn't it? Every time a pastor prepares to enter into the pulpit or does enter into the pulpit. He needs to behold that glory of God because he is speaking on God's behalf. And he needs to have that vision then of God's holiness and glory and majesty and rule so that he is careful with his lips, that he brings only the word of God and not his own thoughts. But also for you, each one of you in the office of believer, you too need to see the glory of the God who rules in heaven so that you are careful how you behave yourself and you are eager to give a word of testimony to those around here, around you of God's glory, especially his glory in Christ Jesus. How could you be silent? after being filled with that vision of our great God. What a vision. Do you have it? As it's set before you tonight in the scriptures, can you spiritually see the great God who sits in his temple on a throne in all of his majesty that commissions all of us, as believers, to give a testimony. We need that glory of God so that we're not afraid. So that Isaiah is not afraid when he comes to the multitude of Judah and Jerusalem who will not want to hear. They don't want any warnings from God. Who needs to be warned? They're the sons of Abraham, aren't they? Everything's fine for them. Remember, this is at the period 
of when Uzziah died. It's the time when the kingdom of Judah was probably at one of its highest peaks ever since Solomon. Peace and prosperity were in the land at this time. Do they really have to listen? Do they have to be warned? Surely God must be for them, no matter what they're doing. You and I need that view. The minister needs it, so he's not afraid to bring God's word in all of its beauty, but all of its solemnness also. Not afraid if that word of God is going to step on some toes, because it first of all steps on his own toes as he prepares. But you and I also need it as believers to speak that word of testimony to family and friends. Some of you with family that does not at all really care for our churches, do not care really that you, our members, are here, who really don't want to hear from you. The glory of God is so great. Who could say no to him? Now the one who is called. He calls Isaiah. And when Isaiah sees this vision, he is forced to make a cry, isn't he? Then said I, woe is me. For I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, says Isaiah, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a greater culpability of those who are, have seen the King. That is, through the preaching of the word, maybe from youth on, they have seen the king. The king has been set forth in all of his glory and power. Jerusalem and Judah, who had witnessed all of God's marvelous miracles, the temple worship service, who have had prophets, priests, and kings bring the word of God to them, woe is them. For they are people of unclean lips, unclean hearts, rebellion, sinful. Yes, with that glory and the holiness of God shining forth, Isaiah is aware then of his own sins and shortcomings. Knowledge of our sin is important, and we heard about that this morning, didn't we? And we need to think about it in these two weeks before the Lord's Supper, how greatly we need that blood of Jesus Christ that washes away all of our sins. Isaiah is saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, really trying to say, I am of myself unfit to be a prophet of the Lord. Any minister worth anything is also one who says, I of myself am unfit to bring this word of God. It's with fear and trembling that one should come to the pulpit. Lest he brings anything else than the word of God. 
not only Isaiah, but also all the people who are unclean. The wickedness of Jerusalem and Judah had risen up to heaven, and God is going to bring judgment to them. Uncleanness. Self-condemnation. Before we're ready to speak a word of God's holiness, we must experience that holiness for ourselves. Woe is me. Not only the pastor then, but the whole congregation as we give a testimony the teachers in the school, parents in the home, those who you work with, extended family. Woe is me. Who am I to speak it? And Isaiah making that acknowledgement, woe is me, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs off from the altar, and he laid it upon my lips. The live coal was taken there from the altar of incense. And before that coal was on the altar of incense, that is a coal that came from the altar of the burnt offerings that altar that had blood sprinkled on it. It was those hot coals that were taken into then the temple by the high priest and placed on the incense that was laid there. And that's what makes the prayers of God's people as they ascend like that incense pleasing to God. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That live coal put on Isaiah's lips and his tongue. And the angel is able to tell them, tell him, your iniquity is taken away. The whole temple filled with smoke there, fire symbolizing the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes. And notice, not only is there the symbol of it, but there's also the explanation of it. He laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. That is what the Lord does with the symbols also in the church, doesn't he? Unlike the church before the Great Reformation, there the symbol was everything and there'd be a little homily added to it. With the Great Reformation is the primacy of the preaching. We have not only the symbols there of the Lord's Supper or the symbols of baptism, but there is an explanation. We read that form that goes with it, explaining what the symbols are pointing to so that we may believe. And that's what takes place here in Isaiah's vision. Smoke fills the temple, the live coal is put on his lips and his tongue, and lo, says the seraphim, lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, thy sins purged. 
forgiveness and cleansing. Beloved, there you have the incentive for a pastor to preach. There you have the incentive for believers to testify. First of all, the great vision of our God in the scriptures, and then second of all, what he has done for our souls, what he has done for us, taken our sins away. Sanctified by the Lord, now the question comes to him. Also, besides the word that he hears of the seraphim, now he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom will I send? And who will go for us? Notice there the plural that is used. The pl- who will go for us? The plural used there, not because he's talking now to the angels. The angels are not doing the sending. But the plural is used there because of the majesty of God, first of all, and second of all, because of the Trinity. The threefold, holy, holy, holy is now followed by this word of the Lord, who will go for us? Purified, sanctified, by grace called, Isaiah answers, It was a rhetorical question. There was no doubt in God's mind what he was doing, who he was calling, and there was no doubt in Isaiah's mind either. To that rhetorical question, who will I send, who will go for us? Listen to Isaiah's answer. Here am I. Send me. Here am I, holy enthusiasm. Holy enthusiasm that causes a pastor to want to get up behind the pulpit and explain God's word and apply God's word. Holy enthusiasm of the believers with their children at home. You want to tell them about your great God in Christ Jesus and what he's done for you and for them. You want to speak to your broader family. You teachers, you can't wait to get to school and have the classroom there again and every subject brought under this teaching of God's word because precious souls are there. Here am I. Oh, beloved, that is the readiness of true faith. Holy enthusiasm, even though he does not get any promise of success. But rather, it's going to be to deaf ears, as we're going to find out later on. Here am I. Isaiah is ready and willing to say, thus saith the Lord. Whether it's in comfort to his people or whether it is in warning to his people, or if it is in judgment to the wicked. Here am I. 
send me. That brings me to my second point. Sanctified by the purified or purifying love and grace of God, the prophet is ready to take up his task. As I said, there's no promise of success. He's going to be called to preach to deaf ears. But he's willing to say, thus saith the Lord. What is the content of Isaiah's calling? And we read verse 9. Go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and they hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Still, Isaiah, here am I, send me. I reflect as I was working on this passage of when I was in college and seminary. And I knew that I would stick out like a sore thumb in the denomination where I was at. And I wasn't quite so ready to say, here am I, send me. I thought, oh Lord, I think I'll go into Christian school teaching instead. The Lord says no. What does that mean? Bring the word, hear, but understand not. See, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Those are not the words that he's going to be saying to them. He's going to be bringing the word of God. But this is going to be the way that he has to bring it. This is going to be the circumstances of his preaching. Negatively, they're going to be very slow to hear. It does not mean that Isaiah's words would be a riddle. Boys and girls, you'll remember Samson, when he got married, told a riddle to the people. That's something that they wouldn't be able to figure out at the wedding, and he, it would give him the occasion then to bring battle against the Philistines. But Isaiah's words are not going to be a riddle. They're not going to be dark. They're not going to be unclear. They're not going to be obscure words. He's not going to speak in some kind of under, uh, uh, not understood language. God doesn't work that way. For the word, when it's preached, comes to all those that hear so that they can very well hear and see. And it's very plain to them. They must hear God's word, either to their comfort or they hear it to their own judgment. There are those who say what Isaiah is being told here, it's kind of like Jesus' parables. He would tell parables and the meaning would be hid. No, the meaning wasn't hid to the Pharisees or anyone else in Jerusalem. They understood mentally or naturally what he was talking about. And that's what made them so angry. 
but they would not be able to understand it spiritually. They would not be able to take it into themselves. And why is that? Because the natural mind, without the Spirit, the grace of the Holy Spirit, cannot understand spiritual things. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No, he has to bring God's Word in an understandable way, and yet most of the people of Judah and Jerusalem will not believe, will not turn from their sins. They will say, all is well with me because I'm a son of Abraham. We've got the promise. We're okay. So that preaching must be done promiscuously, we read in our confessions. That word of God comes with the same content. It comes negatively. It comes with a warning. As we read later on in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. That's what we heard this morning, isn't it? Between the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, he went home unchanged. There was no peace for him with God. It was the publican who went home with peace in his heart. He was justified. There's going to be desolation to those who turn away proudly and wickedly from God and his word. Positively, the proclamation of the word is grace and salvation for all those who bow down before God's word with humility. Those who believe it, those who confess their sins, there is that twofold work of the word of God when it's preached and there's no neutral ground. Either you accept it by faith or you turn away from it in anger and bitterness. What a severe warning to those who were God's church in that Old Testament. He was to speak judgment to Israel. Make the heart of his people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and they hear with their ears and understand with their heart and they convert and be healed. And no wonder this poor prophet who has this task to bring this word of God, which is not at all pleasant, no one's going to want to hear this judgment that comes from God. He says, Lord, how long? How long does that have to be my ministry? And God's answer, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there's a great forsaking in the midst of the land. The people will understand this word naturally. They'll, they understand what he's talking about. You're sinning. And in the way you're sinning, you're not going to experience God's grace, but his wrath. But spiritually, they will not hear the Spirit. They will not understand or perceive savingly with their hearts. 
They will not hear and repent. They will not be converted from their evil ways. And they are not spiritually healed. They are hardened spiritually. God's word hardens hearts with his warning. It's a clear message that they can understand intellectually, but they refuse, they shut their eyes. If you want an example of that, go back to the book of Exodus when God's word came by Moses to Pharaoh over and over and over again. And with the plagues that came, then all of a sudden Pharaoh would say, okay, 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 I'll let you go. And then he hardened himself again, and I will not let you go. Over and over, he hardens his heart, even as the Lord hardens his heart, making him ready for his judgment when he would be destroyed with his host in the Red Sea. God hardens the hearts of those in the church who have heard the word of God and then turn away from it. And they also harden their hearts. As Paul writes, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. Any preacher has to be ready for that in his calling as a pastor. And any believer that does bring that testimony in the home or to the workplace, in their neighborhood, to their extended family, better expect the same thing. They're not all going to say, oh, thank you, thank you for testifying to me. For bringing the word to me. We know that reprobation cuts right through families, don't we? Or there are those in families that turn away from the word that they have heard from their youth on. And they become hardened in their sin. And it is that negative purpose that is really coming here on the foreground of this passage. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, who is sufficient for this? No man is sufficient of himself. Yet it's the calling of the pastor. It's the calling of the head of the home with his children and his wife. It's the calling of our Christian school teachers. It's the calling of each one of us as we're placed in this dark world. One of our songs talk about that personal testimony where we declare what the Lord has done for our souls. Yes, who is sufficient for that? There's some members of my family that will hate me if I dare say anything to them. Yes, they will. Just as there's some members in the church that turn away from the word of God. They harden their hearts even as the Lord hardens them. 
That's the operation of sin and ungodliness on the part of the people there in Israel. Apart from that grace of God in the heart, they will continue to operate in sin and ungodliness. For that's all that man can do by his sinful nature. Reject the Lord. So we read, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, because those things are spiritually discerned. It takes grace, and none of us, none of us have that kind of grace that we can pour out. The pastor cannot turn one heart. He can bring the word, but it's the Lord that has to turn that heart. And when you give a testimony to extended family, when you give a testimony there to the children in the classroom, it's the Lord who has to turn those hearts. It takes grace. Hardening does take place by the operation of the Word of God. The more clearly the Word is brought by you and by me, the more belligerently the wicked turn away from it. Children might quit coming to catechism class. I don't need that. Families start missing worship services. Elders come to them with their responsibility to not neglect the assembling of ourselves together as is the custom of some. And they're not ready to listen to those elders. And it becomes a pattern. And the elders continue to try to come to them and finally, they don't want to even be at home when the elders come there. They don't want to hear. They are hardened. They, with an ungodly heart, set themselves against the word of God and the assembling of ourselves together. And even some of them will dare come to us and then they say, that's legalism. That's legalism when you say it. Kids have to come to catechism. That's legalism when you say that we have to come twice to church on Sunday. I will not. Give me my papers. The hardening of hearts by the people themselves, but also by the word of God that's brought brought over and over and over again by the pastor, by the elders, or by you as believers to the extended family, to the neighbor, to the person at work, or the children in the classroom. They harden themselves just as Pharaoh did. Just as we heard this morning, Cain hardened himself. As the Pharisees did with Jesus' instructions. And of course, the greatest reason is because of God's decree of reprobation. God has determined not to save them, to pass them by, to leave them in their sins. So you see the preacher, the parent, the spouse, the believer giving a testimony has a calling has a calling to tell those around them and to himself, repent, turn from your evil way. 
A call to repent. Notice that's not a well-meant offer. Jesus wants to save you if only you're willing to. No, it's not that. It's a command. A command to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And the more sharply that word is brought, the ungodly heart rebels. But by the grace of God, God's saints repent. They hear the word of God, and the Spirit takes that word and plants it in good soil of the heart. That means that heart has been made new. That means that that heart has been made soft. In my days, you didn't go plant without tilling the ground well, making it first of all soft, and then the plant, the, the seeds are easily dropped into the ground, and the roots can spread out, and it grows. The Spirit causes that word to enter hearts and lives, minds, so that they turn. They turn from their sins to Christ Jesus. Notice with me, thirdly this evening, the purpose of Isaiah's calling. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. The reason we go out and we preach promiscuously, the reason you give your testimony not only to those who like it, but also those who don't like it, is first of all because God is worthy to be made known. By the scriptures opened up, you and I also have a vision of our God on his throne, and we have a vision of his Christ who hung there on the cross and rose again, is now in heaven. And with that vision, we speak. We speak because God's purpose with his word is a twofold purpose. For his word is a power unto salvation to those that believe. But God's purpose is also to show the wicked, to show the wicked their unrighteous behavior, their actions, and condemn them in their sin. They are made ripe for judgment. And as I said in our text, it's that negative purpose that is on the foreground. What is going to be the result of Isaiah's preaching there to Jerusalem and Judah? These are the last days. They're going to continue in their sin. And like the chaff, they're going to be carried away. The chaff is made ready for the fire to be burned. If you boys and girls remember anything about Jesus' parables, you will remember about the tares that are growing up in the wheat field. Those tares that are sown there by the devil himself, they're not pulled out until it's time. They're not torn out because if you would start pulling those weeds out when they are green and the wheat is still green. You might be tearing the, the, the wheat plants out. You disturb that wheat field. 
They're allowed to grow up for a while until finally it's very clear which are weeds. They're still green, and the wheat is nice white or yellow. Then it comes the harvesting. The harvesting when the tares are pulled up and are burned and the wheat is gathered in the garner. And that day is coming also at the end of the world, but it comes at the end of everyone's life also. When everyone is going to have to meet the Lord, their maker, what have you done? What opportunities have you had? And the more the opportunities that one is given, the more that one is responsible, aren't they? That's why I begin the third point with human responsibility. For you see, even though God elects and God also reprobates, each human is responsible for what they do. Because God has created us with a mind that is able to think and with a will that is able to respond. We're not just stocks and blocks. When God comes with his word, do you know what he is saying to you individually, what he is saying to his church? What do you do with that word that points out your sins? What do you do with that command that comes to you, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you say? When God comes in the gospel and he says, here is my Christ. Do you see my Christ hanging on the cross? What do you think of him? When Christ Jesus in the gospel is set before you in his person, in his names, in his attributes, in his wonderful works that he did, in his instruction, do you bow down in humility and say, I believe. I believe, Lord, help thou my unbelief. That is a prayer for stronger faith and nobler duty. Do you pray and do you thank God for the giving of his spirit who prepares your heart, who makes it soft, who plants that word of God solidly in you? That word comes by grace to his own. Is it grace to all if only they are willing? No. That word is a word of stumbling to the, uh, to the wicked. It is a word of grace to his own. That's why it's so important that we come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. These are the means of grace, aren't they? We want to partake of that grace of God. Stay home. That'd be like staying home from a, a feast that's being held. You don't get to taste the good stuff. Stay home from church and you don't hear the word of God. And the grace that comes to you through that word of God. Second of all, in that third point... Notice God's sovereign reprobation of the wicked. Did you not hear? Did you not know? And as I said, it's going to be much more severe for Capernaum and Bethsaida. 
Jesus says, than for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be much more severe for you and I who have been raised all of our life in our Christian churches to turn away from that word than for the Buddhist or the person in a Hindu land or in Africa who have never heard the word of God. For there are different layers in hell and God's punishment and wrath according to what one is given. May we, by God's grace, heed the word of God that points out our sins. Not be hardened in it, but cry out to God, my sin, my sin, be merciful to me, the sinner. Sovereign reprobation, O children of God, we do not gloat about this. We do not rejoice when we see that hardening of one of the children in our family. It brings tears to our eyes, doesn't it? It's painful. No, our attitude always should be like that of the Apostle Paul with the Jews. We read it in the book of Romans, chapter 9, he begins that chapter there. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, and the list goes on there. It brings sorrow. God knows whom he has chosen and whom he has not chosen, whom he has reprobated. We don't. And that is why we very seriously, promiscuously bring the word of God whenever we can, the preacher from the pulpit, the missionary on the mission field, but each one of us in our place as a believer in the home, in the classroom, in our neighborhood, at the workplace. We want others to have that vision of the great God whose glory and holiness fills the temple and his Christ. painful. There will be a great destruction. For as Isaiah begins his book, remember that chapter 1 verse 27, Israel shall be redeemed with judgment. What that means is when the farmer takes in that wheat it has the chaff still around the wheat, doesn't it? And that has to be shaken up, shaken in the combine nowadays. It used to be throwing it up in the air, waiting for the wind to blow off the chaff. It needs to be separated. And that's what was going to take place for Jerusalem and Judah. For they, like Israel, the ten tribes before them who went into Assyria as captives and never returned again as a group. 
So Judah and Jerusalem are going to be sent to Babylon for 70 years. Judgment. To remove the chaff. And there's only going to be a small remnant that comes back, 49,000. But even of that 49,000 that come back, there still is a lot of chaff, isn't it? And that's why in this particular prophecy, we read in verse 13, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and it shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. There's going to be that group that come back from Babylon, but they are also going to grow in apostasy and sin. And God is going to remove them finally in A.D. 70 by the Roman captivity. God will bring that judgment upon them. You ask me, is there any good news at all in this message? And beloved, the answer is yes. Yes, there is. There shall be a tenth. Now that's not talking about exactly one-tenth, but the number ten there means fullness or completeness. Those whom God has chosen, they are going to be there and they will come back. And even of that group, for you'll notice that those two trees are laying down, they've been cut down. In them is the holy seed. Israel comes back from Babylon in order that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the promised seed and Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born. And in Christ Jesus, all the elect who love God and his Christ are saved. What a message. What a good message that is. Let me wind up. What is the conclusion then? Two things. First of all, humility. Deep humility. That we hear the word of God we perceive it, we understand it, and we turn and repent when our sins are mentioned instead of getting angry like a child might to the parent when they are warned about their evil doings. You'll remember Eli didn't bring that kind of warning or judgment to his sons, to his own peril. It doesn't lie in us, not in our abilities to save ourselves it's not our worthiness to be saved. It's only the sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus. Our believing is not found in ourselves, but it is a gift of God, faith given to us by grace. We don't boast about ourselves. We also deserve to be removed. But God in his grace saves us. So deep humility and number two, rich comfort. Because it looked very dark, didn't it, there for that little booth in a cucumber field. It didn't look very good for the remnant. 
but God works all things for good. And that little remnant, it remains a little remnant, but in that remnant, God doesn't forget his problem, promise. He sends the Messiah. The Messiah has come, and the Messiah is going to come again. And that's our hope. So we press on. Yes, we are willing to bear the reproach of family members, people that we work with, those in the neighborhood, those in our own family. We'll bear that reproach. We'll bring the word of God, and God will work it for his purpose. May we be faithful. Amen. We thank thee, Father, for the promise that this prophecy ends with, that thou wilt never abandon thine own. Thou wilt save that remnant whom thou hast chosen and given to Jesus Christ. And thou wilt save them by the means of the preaching of the word. And so, Lord, help us to have ears to hear eyes to see the glory of our God, and lives then lived in gratitude and thankfulness for our great salvation in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.